is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from a Welcome to Christlike Thinking, a podcast dedicated to discussing how Christians can live out Romans 12:2, which tells us, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. In today's inaugural episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Dorothy Borse, Associate Professor of Biology at Gordon College, an evangelical Christian college in Massachusetts. Good morning, and thanks for joining me. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Borse, um, uh, I wanted to begin by just asking you a little bit about what worldview means to you. Well, I think worldview is um, the assumptions that we make that, or the framework in which we think that answer very fundamental, large questions about uh, the world. So, for example, uh, where does the world originate? What is the role of humans? Um, Why does life have meaning? Or does it have meaning? And that kind of question. Traditionally, I think there have been about five questions that people have suggested, and I couldn't list them all off the top of my head, but that's <laughs> the nature of them. Okay, well, I think you listed quite a few there, three, four, five, I don't know. Um, but yeah, they were in, at Gordon College, you've had experience teaching a class called Christianity, Character, and Culture, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I have. Can you tell me something about that? Well, it was a class that was um, both an introduction to the liberal arts and also an introduction to worldview and Christian worldview. And let me just say that um, while Christians have a lot of commonality, some of these worldview questions, we don't just come up with answers by ourselves. It's in a matrix of thousands, 2,000 years of Christian thinking. And so we would often do readings from um, earlier Christians or even some of the creeds, for example, um, and we would use some readings on that, and then we would pair them with having to uh, look at things that you might read in literature or you might see in the news and ask, how would a Christian worldview apply to this? So we would read a wide range of things from um, secular books like White Noise by Don DeLillo to um, Christians of a wide range of backgrounds. Like we used to read Silence by uh, Susako Endo, and we um, we read Gilead by Marilyn Robinson one year, and then we'd read things that were um, were not necessarily literature. Things like Gilbert Mylander's Working Its Meaning and Limits, or Standing on the Promises by Lewis Smedes, and we would um, talk about them. And sometimes we would contrast them with a worldview we knew uh, was a foil. Something like we. Many years we read the Humanist Manifesto from 1933, and we would look at what were the things that Christians could agree with or what would Christians disagree with in that document. Obviously that there were a number of very significant things people would disagree with. That sounds like it's uh, the Christian liberal arts and the greatest tradition. Yes. I, I mean, it was a really a privilege. I'm a scientist, but I do think if you're going to, if you are at a liberal arts college, the center of the concept is that you are to be broadly educated and able to make connections between ideas in one field and ideas in another field, and that that's just as valuable for scientists to be able to do as anybody else. 
I think it goes the other way as well. I think Christians who um, have the privilege of getting an education ought to be conversant in science and have a basic science literacy Mm -hmm. so that they can be better citizens, for example, and better thinkers about the world. I would definitely agree. Um, So this is a freshman course, correct? That was a freshman course. Right, okay. Um, From your experience teaching that uh, Christianity, character, and culture Mm -hmm. with freshmen and such, you know, such a broad range of, you know, ideas being discussed. Uh, how how did you find 18, 19 year old uh, Christian students prepared for that type of discussion? Well, you know, freshmen are just lovely human beings. I've <laughs> always liked them. I like every stage, I think. Yeah. But um, but they often come in with a freshness and excitement that is really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, However, they often come in without having thought through some of the things that they were raised with. And some of them have really already been taught how to think very critically and compare ideas. And some of them have not. And one of the nice parts about being at Gordon is that because we are um, not denominational, we have students and we have faculty from many Christian denominations. We all agree to um, a statement of faith. Mm-hmm. and behavior that um, that is a, a pretty basic uh, Apostles' Creed kind of statement, but it's foundational principles of Christianity. And so we say at Gordon that we're doing a freedom within the framework of faith. We have a freedom to explore ideas, but we have a framework of a basic Christian faith that's very solidly held. Mm-hmm. So that means that our conversation can be fairly rich because we're not back at the start asking, do why would we even think there's a God, which you might be if you were not at a Christian school. Right. But it also does mean that you have to navigate a lot of discussion with people who might disagree with you, who are <laughs> still Christians. And let me just say, it's a journey. Freshmen are rarely well prepared for that. <laughs> yeah. And that's part of our job is to both model that respectful dialogue, model the ability to think um, and and love people with whom we disagree, mm-hmm. and and train people how to do that because that's the nature of our lives together. Right, and of course, um, I think that would be true for all parents and even mm-hmm. even local churches. Yeah, you know, um, churches should be investing in younger people developing these things. So you had mentioned that there were some who came very well prepared, which yeah. which makes me think, did you notice any commonalities that, you know, takeaways that parents or churches could think about and say, well, if we want to prepare students to go off to college and, and be thinkers, what should they be doing? Okay. I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. And one of them is that the parents that are most successful have been parents that have engaged um, with other Christians about issues about which they disagree without being rancorous about it, like that have modeled that where students have had people at their table. And I'm talking about Christians here because um, it's also something you need to learn, how to model respectful dialogue with um, people outside of Christianity, but for the freshmen, you know, these are all conversations within our class, and so um, even that is very difficult. I mean, so I think it's very helpful to know how to do this, and I think one thing that makes it harder 
is when people have been so afraid that their children will lose their faith Mm -hmm. if they encounter an idea that they don't want their students to meet credible people who have those ideas. And I guess I guess there's a balance between exposing your children to things you think are really not true mm-hmm. because you know the Bible does say think uh, you know whatever is true is what we should spend our time on. But I think that when people understand that wow, my kids should be able to engage with ideas. Mm -hmm. And the ideas, God will protect them from a false idea. You know, God will keep their faith. Christians have a range of views on things, and they're all able to go to heaven here. Mm -hmm. That's really, really helpful. And when people feel like, wow, my 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 Christian beliefs are very narrowly defined, and I'm pretty sure that anybody that doesn't really agree with me on a, a laundry list of points is um, is not really saved. That's a difficult position because then the minute the student runs into somebody who convinces them otherwise, sometimes their faith is actually much more fragile. Mm-hmm. It's a brittle faith. And one of our goals at Gordon is that people would have a robust faith <laughs> that can face challenging ideas and and not falter. And and that robust faith is not best served by a, a brittleness, if that makes any sense. It does. And and again, you're you're highlighting what I believe is the 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 greatest reason for liberal arts education everything you're saying is basically the purpose of liberal arts education to be a well-rounded thinker to be able to engage ideas um to to have your own ideas that you can uh, articulately defend but also consider other ideas without losing your own faith in whatever you believe but also without attacking the other person and not having to live in a world in which you only surround yourself with people who agree with you. I think that's one thing that leads to a lot of church splits. And the Bible explicitly says that schism is a bad thing. And I feel like um, we as Christians haven't always taken those scriptures very seriously. Like if we took the scriptures about schism in the church as seriously as we take the scriptures about some other things, we would we would really be working very hard to promote the tools people need to to be able to talk uh, well with each other. I think one of the, the hardest things in the world to do is to really respectfully engage with ideas that you don't agree with when you think it matters. Right. It's very easy to engage with people on things you don't agree with if you don't think it matters. Right. Or it's very easy to separate yourself on issues if you think they matter. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to stay engaged on things when you really think it matters yeah. and, you don't, and you don't agree and to live in that space of tension. I wanted to talk, of course, about your um, experiences and research mm-hmm. and work in, in science. So mm-hmm. um, you are an ecologist. Is that would mm-hmm. you? Consider? I'm an aquatic ecologist. Aquatic yeah. ecologist. Um, mm-hmm. So freshwater. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I one of my degrees is in oceanography and limnology, so yeah. I, I always joke I have two-thirds of the water cycle because <laughs> um, I've got the fresh water, salt water, and um, not the atmospheric component. <laughs> <laughs> right. How did you get interested in that area? Well, I always liked the outdoors. My dad uh, loves plants. We always had a big garden, and we lived on a little farmette. Mm-hmm. and had animals and so I was always interested in outdoor things always interested in biology I thought like many people that I was going to be a missionary doctor when I went <laughs> to college but that was largely because I thought that you you know if you loved God and loved people and cared about um, the poor and oppressed and and were scientific that that was what you would do and at some point, I got an internship in a salt marsh, and I identified plants and insects and mapped I mapped things. There was a reason for it. But anyway, you don't need to know that all. Um, but I really enjoyed that. And I took courses at Alsable Institute of Environmental Studies, which is a functions as a Christian field station for about 60 Christian colleges. There's a a lot of colleges, Gordon is one of them, that sends students to there. And while there, I just um, really connected to the idea that there were a lot of good things you could do with an interest in biology that didn't necessarily involve medicine. Mm-hmm. And I think I could have really happily been a doctor maybe, but I really, really, really liked the outdoors. <laughs> and um, my passion is really um, the interface between where people care for the environment and the effect of environmental degradation on the poorest and most vulnerable, and helping people make a link between what decisions we make about resource use and and care of the environment and um, and and care of our neighbor, love of our neighbor. That if you're going to love your neighbor, you have to care about pollution. You have to care about loss of species. You have to care about loss of soil because that's a part of that picture. Right. And those are those are all very controversial issues within the church. You know, issues... I don't think that they ought to be, or at least the concept should not be controversial <laughs> right. at all. And let me just say that I think um, there's a couple of sticking points. And one is that um, a lot of Christians really like the status quo. I mean, the status quo has worked very well for us in America. <laughs> we have, Humans tend to like the status quo. <laughs> Yeah, we like what has worked for us, and so it's easy to justify um, something from Scripture that is it for you personally, right? Right. Um, and so I think that's part of it. I think um, American Christians have sort of a strong view of American exceptionalism, and so the idea that in America we are we are wealthier than the rest of the world, much of the rest of the world because we've done something right, right? I mean, it's thinking that people have, and that this is a clear sign of God's blessing. And I think that God has really blessed America. But I think sometimes God has blessed America in spite of some of the decisions we made. And I think sometimes, you know, God just allows you to live out with the natural consequences of your actions. And so when you look around the world, and you say, how is God providing for the poor of Haiti? Well, he gave America a great deal, and he's asking American Christians to figure out how best to live justly in the world. Like, I think, so I'm not sure that God's blessing is entirely supposed to stay here with America. Um, 
but that's you know that's not from my field of expertise that's that's mm-hmm. my own christian worldview placing itself on why people have difficulty i think there's i, I think one of the issues that's very hard for american christians right now is a general distrust of science and some of that comes out of um human secular humanism right and i think that there has been some legitimate concern about the things that some scientists have said some have have allowed been allowed to be um spokespeople for science but many scientists do not agree with them (laughs) and and also say that so people are selective about who they listen to right right I wrote a review of the Truth Project's section on science and faith, um, and I and you and I have had a little bit of conversation about that via email. But one of my criticisms was there were quite a number of voices that were in a moderate position, including right. secular scientists who do not think that science is atheistic and are not making those strong statements, and their voices were not heard in that. Right. And I think had they been, the conversation might have been richer and people would have less of their hackles raised about what scientists say. But I think the difficulties people have between science and faith, some of them are promoted by who we quote. (laughs) (laughs) If we chose to know and quote people who were trying to build bridges, then we would have less of a reaction against what science scientists are finding there are very adamant atheist scientists Mm -hmm. there are moderate scientists who are not um, religious but are not opposed to religion and there are scientists who are deeply religious let's look at all three now i think the difficult thing is when you read a phrase like god created Mm -hmm. and somebody like me says and god created and he used a tool that he also created to do it involved a process. I'm completely consistent with that being called a creative act of God. And somebody else will say, I, I think that means you don't think he created. Right. (laughs) And I'll just say, I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I think he'd be wrong about that. (laughs) But, but I think it's in the defining of what, what those doctrines, how they play themselves out in the interface with science that people get. Stuck. You know, when you go to, say, uh, an ecologist conference, and you're with all these ecologists, uh, how do they receive you as a scientist who's also a Christian and teaches at an evangelical college? Well, you know, it really depends. And I have to say that my own research, I have not done a great deal of publication in part in part because I teach so much, and in part because I've spent a lot of time talking to the church. That is, I've spent so much time talking to the church about questions that people have, you know, speaking in churches or writing or um, dealing with these very difficult issues that I am not as productive as a scientist as some scientists. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, if you're a very productive scientist, people will just look at your track record in science. If you walk in and you say, uh, most of the time I spend talking to the church about um, how to deal with scientific, you know, issues of science and faith, they will be very lovely about that, but they may be uninterested. (laughs) They may be, oh, good for you. That's lovely. (laughs) But because we're there to talk about science, right? Right. And um, I think if you just are unapologetic about it, people are generally uh, very respectful. 
and realize that some of the other people are going to feel be the same way. You know, there is a Christians in Ecology meeting at the um, Ecological Society of America meeting every year. There's um, and and there's that kind of thing in many of the guilds in the sciences. There's Christians in in the different guilds that meet and have get-togethers at these big professional meetings. And I think um, in the science, yeah, and I think one of the things that I have found is a growing awareness among scientists that somehow there is a miscommunication between the scientific community as a group and some groups, especially American evangelicals. And they're somewhat grateful for a person willing to be a voice in that conversation and bridge that gap. Um, of course, there are people who are scientists who believe that religions are just all wrong, and they they get to be loud and obnoxious too. You know, <laughs> right. everybody gets to, in America. Everybody gets to be loud. So, so there's a certain amount of that, but I don't think it's uh, the dominant voice. Okay, so when you speak to churches, uh, what what is usually your goal? Well, usually it's whatever they've asked of me. You know, they I don't say, let me come and tell you what I think you need to know. I will get asked, could you come and talk to us about something that we're curious about? And I, I will I will say I just I do writing, and I most recently wrote um, was the lead author on a multi-author work um, that was sponsored by the National Association of Evangelicals called Loving the Least of These. Um, addressing poverty in a changing environment, and that was specifically about poverty and climate change, which is probably my my most pressing interest. On the issue of climate change, do you see it as largely human-created or not? I think um, there is a significant human component. And if you can picture that there's what are called forcing factors, and mm -hmm. some of them occur whether humans do anything or not, and those are called natural forcing factors. And then there's human activities, and those are called anthropogenic forcing factors. Right. And the anthropogenic forcing factors over, lay over the natural forcing factors. So, for example, right now, natural forcing factors would make it cooler than it was if humans were not active. So it should be cooler right now. Okay. But, in fact, we're staying about the same. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when the natural forcing factors come back up, human activity will lay on top of that, and in the coming decades is likely to be much, much hotter than we are now. And okay. so um, if you look at, wow, things go up and down all the time. Of course they do, and they always have. The real issue with climate change, though, is that humans can make it go so fast. And because they can make it go so fast, they can make it difficult for other humans <laughs> to <laughs> adapt. In other words, people can't just move. If you buy property and you can't just, uh, people, we can't just adjust on a dime. And a ship with 7 billion people on it cannot turn on a dime. So trying to look farther out at the horizon and make decisions that will allow us to make the changes we need in a, in a timely fashion to have the least pain and suffering is what we ought to be doing. But some people want to wait until 
that wall is right in front of you and every single person recognizes that it's true <laughs> before we make any forward decisions. And I don't think that's wise. Kind of focus there on climate change's effects on people and the least I of these. did. And mm -hmm. that's because that argument is the most compelling. Yeah, um, but obviously climate change will affect other creatures as well. Mm -hmm. However, other creatures are so important to humans. The, spe mm -hmm. the loss of species generally is so alarming right now, and that effect affects poor people the most. And there was a huge study in Europe that was done a number of years ago that showed that the very poorest people could lose, I think it was up to 50% of their household income if a great deal more species loss occurred because the very poorest people are more likely to be reliant on wild species. And so you can't separate that either. You know, you can't just say, well, I care about humans and not trees or something <laughs> like that. It doesn't work that way. It's very interconnected. Right. Okay. Um, so when you're talking to a church about this, or if you were just in a conversation with, mm -hmm. you know, some Christian, and they, they said, okay, so we get that there is an issue with the climate, and we get that it's affecting humans and all of God's creation, so what do I do now? Well, one of the things I would say would just be to inform yourself, because um, you know, people have very strong opinions without necessarily knowing very much. And then I think the other thing, and one specific thing that I would recommend would be looking at some materials called America's Climate Choices put out by the National Academies of Sciences. And the reasons that those are valuable is that these are the top um, scientists in America. And they are asked by uh, Congress, can you produce something that um, that's readable? <laughs> you know, <laughs> can you take all the science and sort of gel it? So for an American Christian, it's helpful because it's focused on America, but it's also going to talk about the science, it will talk about what what um, adaptations people could make to climate change that's already occurring, and then what mitigations, which are to prevent further climate change, uh, we could have. And we're at a crossroads in some decision-making. Obviously, America doesn't just make decisions in a vacuum, and I think the world is looking for some leadership that we've been lacking because, um, because we are, per capita, the biggest um, producers of greenhouse gases, but I think I think that's true even without climate change in the picture. That's true on other resource use and that's true on some other things that have, you know, sort of global uh, justice issue um, implications. I mean, it, climate change is not one issue that stands separate from the entire discussion on how do we live together justly in an entire world. Outside of the the creation care, the socio sociological or social uh, implications of your research, how has your your faith integrated with your actual scientific research? Well, I th yeah, I think the big ones are um, that it drives the kind of questions that you ask. Okay. So I am motivated to know things because I believe that we are not really doing well with what God gave us to be in charge of. And um, so I think that's one thing. I think another is I have I'm an extremely ethical view of the process of research. And, uh, you know, all the time you'll hear people 
who are trying to get ahead in science and they um, they make up data or they throw out data points or they have conflicts of interest with their funding and and then of course they crash and burn when they get caught your career <laughs> is over so there's some internal punishment for that in the science harsh punishment for that in the scientific community. Right. But there's also in the scientific community that uh, without a discussion of God, there's sometimes a sense of, well, if it can be done, let's try it, you know, about new technologies. Or, right. And I think that one of the things that Christians bring is uh, sometimes a question of, well, should we be doing everything that we possibly can humanly do? Like, is that a reasonable thing to pursue? And I, I, I think bringing a thoughtfulness to that conversation is one of the things that Christians can do. One of the biggest single things that I think Christians bring to the table is hope. And in environmental um, discussions, sometimes Christians are harshly critical of people who care about, who are working in environmental fields because they say you uh, worship the environment. And I I don't think that's true at all. I think maybe that's true for a very small subset of people. But I think when you work with the environment, we need a very Christian voice in there because Christians do not give up easily. Christians believe at the end of the day the battle is the Lord's. So if we're dealing with a very hard issue to deal with and we are trying to save sections of the world that are going extinct and we're try to protect the poorest among us and the and it just looks like a bleak picture that's not the end of the story in the view of a christian so i think right now the biggest thing that christians bring to the table that they should be joyfully running to be involved in in science is um is that we bring hope and hopefully that brings a drive and motivation that to succeed uh, because of that. And so um, I think it's a great time for Christians to be engaging with the sciences, to be really active with the sciences. But if you're asking, you know, does an experiment go differently if you're a Christian? It doesn't generally. It's like Christian carpenters don't use a hammer differently than other people (laughs) do, you know, the same kind of concept. Okay, well, um, you mentioned the idea of faith informing the questions, though. Mm-hmm. So that that makes me think about, and this might be somewhat outside your scientific expertise, but, you know, what about researchers who study things like, is there is there a God gene? Those sorts of questions. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I think the question about the God gene is sort of an interesting one, because I think, I think what you would interpret if there was a gene that was more likely to occur in people that believed in God, you could interpret that, wow, God doesn't exist. It's just in the minds of people with the God gene, right? Or you could interpret that being able to detect God is similar to being able to detect any other real thing. We have eyes because there is light to detect if you know what I'm saying, right? So, yes. if we, so I think the thing that Christians would bring to the table would be an unpacking of that finding. Mm-hmm. But I think that people are going to ask that question: Is there something different about people with a belief in in God, <laughs> <laughs> right. regardless of whether Christians do the work? 
The question of whether prayer is effective, I think, is a different kind of question. And I think that that is a question more focused on trying to study something that maybe doesn't follow natural laws. And so a foundational assumption of science is that when you are studying something, it is subject to natural laws. So that if I do it now, I will get the same result if I do exactly the same thing again and right. and again, right? Right. So you really, by nature, cannot study something that isn't subject to natural laws. Right. Unless and, if you were to if you were to approach it from a different worldview and say, well, God doesn't exist, so prayer can't be effective unless it's a psychological factor or something like that. Then you could say well, then we can study it because it's really psychological, not spiritual. Yes, I guess you could do that. And I don't, um, what I think as a Christian, I think that's not the way to go because I think it's testing God. Right, you know, yeah. Because I'm not a performing junkie. You cannot just ask, I mean, this is my interpretation of what testing God is, but <laughs> right. I think God is saying I'm, I'm not, uh, performing for you on demand right and that that comes up you know jesus says numerous times i will not do a miracle for you you you, you know just because you want one um and so i think for a christian that's really not the approach to take but for a christian of course they're going to ask that kind of question sometimes cynically and i think um you would want to ask, well, suppose you did find a finding, would you accept that that did mean <laughs> prayer was effective? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. would you, are, are you able to actually test your main assumption, which is that this isn't real? Mm-hmm. You know, would there be any evidence that would show you it was? I, I will say that I, I don't see that as a fruitful direction. Right. Yeah, and what you were saying about the God gene sort of relates to um, some of my own research background. I don't know if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs type mm-hmm. indicator personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done some research with that. And one of the personality types, NTs, are analytical thinkers. Um, and, and part of that is they tend to hold off on making judgments for a while. And, mm-hmm. and if, if you think of a scientist, that would analytical and you know not committing to one idea too soon. Um, now, NTs also happen to be underrepresented for among religious people. Yeah, and, and you can picture picture that. Right. right. And it makes perfect sense, but the interesting thing then is that NTs are overrepresented among Jesuit priests. So you could see how someone who was analytical and religious, assuming Catholic, would then if you're looking for a Catholic order to be a priest in, the Jesuits mm-hmm. would be attractive. Um so I think of that, you know, and That's always, interesting. Yeah, I've always well, thought of that because um, you know, the idea that God creates personality types, and it's, right. it happens to be some personality types are more inclined toward religious commitment, um, but that doesn't mean that it, there are no NTs who are religious. And yeah, that's a, that is interesting, isn't it? Because um, I was going to say earlier when you were talking about different freshmen and whether they, you know, where they're coming from. There are people who can live with messiness and tension, mm-hmm. and there are people who cannot. They just want to get to an answer. Mm-hmm. They want it to be very clear, and they want to go on to the next thing. Yes. 
And I will say that in my field, especially ecology and evolution and Christian faith, you have to live with sort of a level of dynamic tension and messiness. And I don't have the answer for that right now <laughs> and may not in my lifetime that some people cannot get there. They can't mm -hmm. allow that in their lives. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're just better suited in a different field. <laughs> so while my own goal, of course, would be that people can be widely educated and mm -hmm. deal with things and not have a fragile faith and all those things, right. there's a certain element of your basic personality that's included there. Mm -hmm. And I think that that same group of people, when they are religious, they like religion with a set of rules, mm -hmm. which I don't think is necessarily helpful. However, it's appealing. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, you know, at least I know where I'm standing here, right? right. And yeah. there's some careers that lend themselves to that. And, and sometimes you just have to look at a person and you have to love them and you have to say, Obviously, you know, your personality is informing the way, the, even just the level at which you can leave things not be completely known. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, and I, I think that's very true, um, you know, in my own experiences with, say, uh, older high school or college students and talking with them about careers, you know, I try to emphasize finding, you know, your personality and how it fits into a career because mm -hmm. so often, you know, people choose a career because, you know, family members wanted that or they thought it was going to make a lot of money and they end up miserable because, as you said, you know, somebody likes, you know, a clear answer and cut and dry and then they go into uh, an extremely complex interdisciplinary field like ecology and mm -hmm. everything's a mess because every everything you look at has a thousand factors going into it. Uh, yeah, it, and obviously, I mean, like something like climate change is, very multifactorial, but people are still doing straight science on it. And right. so you can approach messy, complicated things. But when you add in the faith part, people are just like, oh, I just want it to be clear. And sometimes they don't <laughs> want to, they don't want to be in the sections of science where those issues are coming up all the time and they're constantly right. having to talk about them or craft, <laughs> craft responses. Yeah. Um, well, in terms of the, the faith, aspect of that how how interested are your students in discussing that oh very interesting i mean one of the big things that we have as a great value is uh is being whole human beings and being able to uh to talk about things that matter i think students are very interested in that there mm -hmm. and it's not unique to the sciences to have to struggle with how your faith works so psychologists have to deal with, you know, if I pray, why didn't my mental illness go away? You know, they, yeah. they talk about that all the time. And mm -hmm. social workers deal with, um, if I have beliefs about morality, how do I serve people who have, are not behaving the way I thought they would <laughs> and still clearly have needs that I'm supposed to be helping meet? You know, right. I mean, obviously all of us deal with all these questions on some level, but some of them, the field is is really about these tensions. Artists have dramatic, you know, what art is often pushing the envelope, and sometimes in our modern society, pushing the envelope means rejecting religion. What do I do with the fact that 
you know, religion isn't highly viewed in the art world right now. Yeah. Those kinds of things, the nature of working at a place like Gordon is that you, I have to always come back to it, you know, um, because I have a new group to serve. I have a new group of people who, um, who need to be helped to think about things. After speaking with Dr. Boris, I can say that she represents the idea of Christ-like thinking. She's a Christian who understands that her faith is part of who she is, and her faith informs how she lives in the world. While she is, as she said, comfortable with a certain amount of messiness and ambiguity, that messiness and ambiguity never leads her to give up on the tough issues. She wrestles with the tensions of the Christian life, and she serves the people around her as an example of a Christian who thinks and acts. When high school seniors choose to attend a Christian college, they do so with the hopes of having a professor like Dr. Borse, and I'm thankful that she took the time to talk with me. Thank you for listening to Christlike Thinking. We always welcome listener feedback, so feel free to send an email to ChristlikeThinking at gmail.com, and join us next time. Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from...